This is a Federal News Network podcast. More than two years after the Agriculture Department relocated with a lot of controversy to research facilities out of Washington, D.C., staffing levels at the labs are getting closer to normal. But the Government Accountability Office says USDA's process for deciding on Kansas City, Missouri, left out a few things. Here with more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Drew, let's go back to USDA's decision and how they got there. Back in 2019, USDA decided to relocate both the Economic Research Service and the National Institute of Food and Agriculture. That process started with a list of 139 different locations, but the agency brought it down to 26, then reduced it further to four finalists, and then ended up deciding on Kansas City. USDA said the move would save taxpayer money, improve recruitment and retention, and move resources closer to stakeholders and consumers. But a new report from GAO says the way they used those goals to make their decision was imbalanced. I spoke with the author of the report, Lawrence Evans, from GAO, who said of its three goals, USDA really focused on just one. When you look at what they did, the steps they took, their approach hinge largely on the cost-related factors, which really limit its ability to balance the other of its uh, relocation objectives. So specifically, if you look at 19 MSAs they dropped from further consideration, it was because they had the highest cost of living without consideration for those other objectives, or there was insufficient space to co-locate the two agencies. All right, so that's what they depended on, and what did they leave out, according to GAO? Evan said that when narrowing down places to relocate to, USDA didn't factor in everything that it should have. One of the biggest things that they omitted in their cost-benefit analysis was the possibility of staff attrition, which did in fact happen when they relocated those facilities. The move to Kansas City meant that a lot of employees in D.C. were left with a choice. They either pack their bags and move or they quit their job and go somewhere else. And many chose to leave ERS and NIFA. And that affects things like activities. So you have the loss of employees, the process of moving the facilities, the physical buildings, and that had an adverse effect on the work of the agencies. That includes a loss of institutional knowledge when employees leave who have been there for a long time. There's hiring and training costs for bringing in new employees. And in the meantime, the productivity of those locations is reduced. Even if people are qualified for the jobs, if they haven't been there for a long time, they're not going to be up to speed on the inner workings of those facilities. And adding on top of that, hiring is already difficult for those really specific research positions. I spoke with former ERS administrator Kitty Smith-Evans, who said that moving away from D.C. was a tough sell for a lot of people who were qualified for the jobs. There isn't a huge universe from which to recruit agricultural economists anymore. It can be a tough sell because agriculture to them is not something that they study in school. Recruitment's a hard job to begin with, but it's even more difficult if you're not in a location that meets the expectations of the people you're interviewing. All right. So they're out there, though, and they've got some of the people coming back. They're still in Kansas City. What could GAO recommend at this point? In the report, GAO did not make any explicit recommendations because the relocation had already taken place, but it did analyze the process that USDA used to make that decision. In particular, it looked at a framework that's from the Office of Management and Budget, which really hones in on 
a transparent approach to decision-making that involves stakeholders throughout the entire process. And that framework is based on the Foundations for Evidence-Based Policymaking Act of 2018. But USDA took issue on that point. They wrote a letter in response to the report that says because the guidance came out after they made the decision, it's not a fair framework of analysis. Right. And just to be clear, this letter protesting what GAO said came from the current Agriculture Department, the Vilsack one, and not the Sunny Purdue one. That's correct. It comes from the current administration. And in response to that letter, GAO stood by its report saying the framework is still relevant. And other than that, Evans also told me that there are takeaways for other agencies here in the report for when they're using a cost-benefit analysis to make decisions of their own. What they will find is the criteria that will guide a fully informed evidence-based decision. Say you're going to do a cost-benefit analysis. It should be a systematic examination of the issues at hand. It should be used as a framework to understand the distributional impacts, the expected costs and benefits, unintended consequences. You should be communicating sources of uncertainty. You should think about not only the expected outcomes, but the best and worst case scenario. All right. So what is the latest now from USDA with respect to the staffing levels they do have? Because it sounds like this decision is not going to be reversed. The current secretary, Tom Vilsack, recently gave testimony at a Senate hearing where he talked about the challenges with morale that ERS and NIFA have seen in the past couple of years. But he said that hiring has been robust for both of the research facilities. We have a goal of about 750 people between the ERS facility and the uh, the NIFA mission area. We're about 650. We've seen about 450 folks who have been hired in those two mission areas. So the, the hiring has been, I think, robust. I think people are anxious and interested in working in that environment. We had a morale issue, uh, which we're dealing with. And I think as we hire more folks, that issue becomes less of an issue. The work is getting done, and it's getting done on time. But yet they have replaced about half their people, basically. That's right. 450, that's a lot of new employees coming in. So we'll just have to see if USDA can get back to the full staff for those two facilities and when exactly that's going to happen. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thank you. And be sure to check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, the Navy's Construction Battalion, the Seabees, celebrates eight decades of service. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tamman here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. 
but I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old and uh, I remember I really wanted to play little league baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might've had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, Admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So 
I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current uh, current times, I just it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, I'm not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.